what is history? We must distinguish between the unrecorded past, all the events of the past as recollected by human beings, and history with a capital H, the recorded and interpreted past. Like men, women are, are and always have been actors and agents in history. Since women are half and sometimes more than half of humankind, they always have shared the world and its work equally with men. Women are and have been central, not marginal, to the making of society and to the building of civilization. That's an early passage and introduction to a remarkable book, a seminal book, The Creation of Patriarchy, by the reader as the author of the book, Professor Gerda Lerner, who's a distinguished professor of history at the University of Wisconsin up in Madison. And she was the first uh, woman head of the American Historians Association, you know, the organization. And this is her specialty, the, the history of women, history of women. We ask what history is. Your other books, I know you did a book on the Grimke sisters, the abolitionists. Yes, I did. And on black women in white America. But this one, Creation of Patriarchy, is one that digs into uh, Oxford, the publishers. Yes. That digs into a not-too-often-explored theme. Right. We ask, what is history? The obvious question is, what is patriarchy? You know, uh -huh. the, the name of your book is The Creation of Patriarchy. Well, I define patriarchy as uh, that system institutionalized in which men and not women uh, control the resources, uh, economic, political, and ideological resources, and the access to the resources, and control also knowledge and education. It is also a system in which men and not women control female sexuality and reproduction. And that system is, of course, uh, in has appeared in many forms throughout historical times. And it appears regardless of the political or economic structure of society. So we find it on the feudalism, we find it on the slavery, we find it on the socialism, we find it on the capitalism. No matter what, no matter what the ideology of a society, or no matter what its makeup, whether it be feudal that's right. It is the century. most long-lasting. Yeah. It's the most long-lasting system of hierarchical yeah. dominance. Yeah. And we're going to dig into the matter of sexual dominance. That is the control of the sexuality of women as a factor in keeping women subordinate. Okay. But and also the question of history itself. But your key theme, one of the keys, is that we have been taught for the years, many of us, that it is a matter of nature and not a matter of culture. Right. That this your theory. Throughout, and you, you show a chapter and verse through all the ages up to recent periods, that it was a matter of being laid out and planned culturally, nothing to do with nature. It's a cultural definition. And the reason we have found it so difficult to even understand that we live under patriarchy is that the system is older than Western civilization. Therefore, its ideas are incorporated in all the basic bricks out of which the idea system of Western civilization is formed. And when that's the case, people tend to take it for granted. They think it is natural. For a long time, we were taught it is God-given. And I am trying to show that it is, in fact, a historical creation made by men and women at a given period. and. Uh, it, it, there's nothing either natural or God-given about it. And so, by inference, if it has a beginning, it also has an end. Well, we, and then we have to begin with Adam and Eve, don't we? We have to begin with the myth of Adam and Eve, and then don't no, we No, we have to begin even earlier than earlier, the myth than, yeah. of Adam and Eve. Uh, earlier than the myth. Earlier than the earlier origin than the of the myth. Earlier than the myth of Genesis. Right, okay. right. In fact, Genesis is already an end product of the process that I am investigating. Well, how early do we go? Now we come to the book. Naturally, it's a pre-agricultural stage. It's right. the hunter-gatherer hunter stage. Uh, the book actually begins with a survey of all the various extant influential theories that tell us why women are subordinated. And I survey these theories, and, and then I offer critique them, and I offer my own interpretation. But essentially, uh, what I then do is I look at whatever hard evidence there is, that is the kind of evidence that historians like, uh, evidence from archaeological findings, evidence of uh, cave paintings, uh, writing, paintings, uh, sculpture, myth, 
religion, um, actual evidence. And I looked to see whether, in fact, there was a period when uh, human arrangements, societal arrangements, were not patriarchal. And of course, there was such a period, and it was in the Neolithic age. It was prior to the agricultural revolution. And we can be pretty certain that there were a number of tribes and societies that had arrangements that were much more egalitarian in their division of labor between the sexes and in their distribution of resources between the sexes. So societies in which were essentially run communally, uh, and I am not, uh, sometimes people misunderstand when you say that and they think you are trying to say it was a golden age or anything like it. Well, it was no such thing. The, one of the features of it was extremely short lifespans. Uh, the lifespans. What are the evidences? Well, they are mostly archaeological digs. And one of the most important is one in, in present-day Turkey, uh, which is called Çatal uh, Hüyük, where we have a society where we can see, in fact, um, 3,000 years of development in one dig. And we can see how this society moved from being um, pre-agricultural to agricultural. And there's evidence there that uh, there was a much more egalitarian distribution of, of uh, power between this men and women. The community in Turkey, what was then known as Anatolia. Right. Yeah. Right. And this, we're talking about uh, 3,000 or so BC. Oh, no, this more. is 8,000 to 5,000 Oh, that's far it's, back. That's far back. Now, and then we see, uh, in fact, that that society is wiped out. And again, the people who have written about this have not asked the question, well, what is the significance of the fact that a relatively egalitarian society like this is wiped out, all right? We don't know why they were wiped out, but they didn't survive. But we do know that of all the societies that were more egalitarian, uh, when the agricultural revolution came in, it was the patriarchal societies that survived, the others did not. So I am reasoning from that that at one certain point in human development, patriarchy was functional. It worked to s help certain groups to survive under conditions of extreme militarism. But this even before that, even uh, aside from the, this Anatolian village right. that goes back to seven, 8,000 yeah. BC, and the evidence archeological, uh, some habits that may have been a pain, may have been of priestesses Right. Who were held high. Right. Weren't there matrilineal societies afterwards oh, yes. elsewhere? Well, you see, I think we need to also uh, define that a little better. Uh, matrilineal and matrilocality, by which we mean the moving of a couple who marries into the mother's home rather than the husband's home, all right? That's matrilocality. Um, anthropologists have studied matrilocal societies and historians have studied the remnants and the evidence of previous matrilocal societies. And first of all, we need to say that matrilocality does not mean matriarchy, okay? Does not mean that women control the resources and women control male sexuality, okay? It only means that there's a different marital arrangement. It does give women some more power than they have under patriarchy. And usually the powerful persons are the woman's brother or the uncle. So it's a male in the woman's family that's powerful. It's not the woman herself. All right. Now, what we find is that in this early period, there were many matrilocal societies, and many of them survived. Like, for example, in Crete, uh, there's good evidence that the Trojans of the Trojan War were matrilocal. In Priam's palace, Priam lives there with his daughters and their husbands. So it must have been matrilocal, right? But it was hardly a matriarchy, mm. all right? Now, um, Priam was still the boss. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Now, what, what happened, however, is that generally speaking, if you look at it as a historic development, these matrilocal societies give way to patrilocal societies with the further development of warfare and settled agricultural settlements. Now, right? since you mentioned Priam and Troy, uh, Homer throughout is your source for a good deal of the yes. nature which women were used and had, especially their sexuality, in the Iliad and an Odyssey. Right. In the Iliad, you got Achilles stuck in the tent for a certain reason. 
Yes, he's sulking in his tent because um, uh, Agamemnon has taken his concubine, his slave concubine. Now, I'm using this. I have to say a word about my methodology there. Yeah. I'm approaching the myths of the past, the literary creation, the way a historian does. That is, I'm not assuming that everything that I'm told is a historical fact because it may just be an invention. But I am assuming that certain things that are taken for granted by inference are historical facts. For example, if it is taken for granted that every warrior gets as a prize of battle a woman captive as his slave, then, and nobody explains that. Homer never explains that. He doesn't feel it necessary. Then I can assume, as a historian, yeah. that in fact, that was a custom in that period. But there's even something wor uh, far worse case would be in the Odyssey, when Odysseus comes back home to his faithful Penelope, right. the suitor, he knocks off the suitors, but his son, Telemachus, knocks off the women who were raped, raped by, by the, the suitors. suitors. Now, right. here's a question of killing the victim. That's right. And it shows you the low status of uh, lower class women in that society because we have been told that these women were forced by the soldiers. That was one of the crime of the suitors, that they raped the women servants. And yet, it is the women servants who are killed in a very brutal manner, as a now, matter of fact. Now, what was the rationale? Was there one given? Or there was no Well, the rationale it? given was that they have dishonored the male head of the household, Odysseus. That's the rationale By given. allowing themselves to be raped. That's right. And well. I am pointing out <clears throat> in the book <clears throat> that, in fact, this ideology <clears throat> is still with us. It happened in the Bangladesh-Indian <clears throat> conflict in our own century when the Bangladesh uh, women were raped by the invading soldiers and were then cast out by their husbands and fathers and had to become prostitutes because nobody would come near them. Isn't this, uh, in a muted way, still the case today when a woman suffers humiliation and assault and rape? In many instances, she, there's still a sense of shame there. Less, right. less today, of course. Well, I think due to some of the work of the women's movement, we have uh, abolished some of that attitude in our own courts now. But that's only a very, very recent development. Yes. But we go way, way back. You see, you're, you're talking about a cultural base for the subordination of women. And uh, we come... <laughs> I didn't realize this passage in Genesis. Lot uh, tossing out his virgin daughters to the mob uh, who had to knock off some of the guys. No. Well, uh, you see, again, I am, uh, you're, you're taking me here to the end of my book. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm jumping back You're jumping and back and forth. Right, well, let's go for back. a historian, oh, let's do, that's let's a very difficult oh, thing to do. Yeah, I do We're that. supposed to advance right, chronologically. Let's do, it, let's do it at least to, to some extent chronologically. Okay, okay. good. Okay. So we were at the very beginnings. There was a moment in the pre-agricultural period well. in which women had a say more than was later the case. Then he was scribing the change to patriarchy to the appearance of property? Right. Now, the, the major theory about the origin of women, the most influential of, of women's subordination, has been that uh, propounded by Frederick Engels, uh, which many people who are not uh, otherwise uh, subscribers to Marxism have accepted. And Engels was very alert in showing us that somehow or another, the origin of patriarchy had something to do with private property and had something to do with the formation of the state. What Engels said was that, th that it was the acquisition of pi private property which caused men to want to control the sexuality of women so that they would know who their offspring are so that they could uh, preserve the inheritance rights of their sons. What I am concluding from the evidence I have seen and from the way in which I look at the evidence is that while Engel was right in a vague sense, he was wrong on the sequence. It was, in fact, the subordination of women, which is one of the major sources of private property. And it came before uh, class structures were established. That's one of the main points of my book, that the subordination of women is, in fact, the ground 
upon which men learned how to subordinate other men. And in other words, and also slavery. Right. The first form of slavery was And that the first of form of slavery was the enslavement of women of conquered other tribes or races. You and see? so when one tribe conquered another right. before there was nationalism, one group conquered another, the men, the captive men were killed. Right. And, and the women were, became the slaves. Right. And I, um, I'm reasoning. I mean, this is a fact that every historian of slavery has observed. And it's, by the way, it's uh, not only true, it's true not only in the ancient Near East, it is true in China, it is true wherever slavery arose, that the first captives historically were women and children. Now, I, I'm the, I think I'm the only person that has asked, well, you all tell me this, why? What is the meaning of this? And I'm trying to explain that in my chapter on, on the slave woman. And I reason that uh, before you had class society, that it must have been very difficult for people to imagine that you could take a large group of people that look just like yourself and make them do your bidding without these people paying you back for it, without these people getting up at night and murdering you and your children and your wife. They didn't know how to do that. But they did know how to exchange women in marriage from other, because they had been marrying women of other tribes. And these women had, in a patrilocal arrangement, had come to live with what was essentially a foreign group. And the reason these women uh, would stay was, of course, that they had children and that they uh, relied on the protection of the father and the father's family for their children. Well, when men had the knowledge and enough foodstuffs that enabled them to take slaves and not kill them, it would have been easy for them to reason that it was easy to incorporate women into your household. Hmm. And there's another factor. You could take women, and of course, these women were inevitably raped. There's lots of evidence for that. There was no such thing as taking a foreign woman and incorporating her in your household without also sexually acquiring her. You actually owned her. And so these slave women, once they were raped, they would have children. And women choose to stay with their children at any cost in, in the hope of protecting so, them. So preceding long, long centuries, millennia before black slavery in the United States, oh, yeah. and slave women, of course, became the mothers of many of the master's children. Right. Uh, before, a millennia before that, it was the case, preceding racial slavery. That I, I think that uh, the, fir you see, it's no accident that the first slaves anywhere were people of an outgroup. So you could say sometimes they might be a different race. They might be mountain people. They might be Semites versus uh, uh, others or whatever. But they had to be different and they had to be female to be enslaved. And only after men had experimented with this for a long time and after they had also learned how to take the children of slave women and make them slaves by branding them, by setting them apart, then they learned that they could also take the male captives and treat them like that. Of course, the, the glory that was Athens, to a great extent, was uh, the glory of a slave society. Oh, too. certainly. Male as well as female. Yes, but by that time, you know, we we're in 400 BC, yeah. and I'm talking about a period yeah. probably in the fourth millennium yeah. BC. So let, let's, let's take this break for a message and resume with Dr. Gerda Lerner, Professor Lerner, of the University of Wisconsin, Madison, a press of history and research professor. The, her primary interest, of course, is the history of, of women in the world. And also, it's a whole a new approach to history. It's, you might say it's an approach of what has been, to a great extent, suppressed history. Resuming with Dr. Gerda Lerner, and the book is The, the Creation of Patriarchy. And we accept this, and there's some who would accept it as a matter of course, as a matter of, well, there's a natural difference between those who are in control and those who are controlled. We know the challenge of that throughout. You show that it's cultural all the way down the line, that something has been set up all the way down the line. Yes, but I also, what I, I think what's significant about 
this uh, discussion of slavery is that from the very start of slavery, from the idea, what I call the invention of slavery, you have to be an outsider. So that could be a different race or a different tribe, mm -hmm. right? And you have to be uh, female to be enslaved. So racism and sexism and classism have an intimate structural relationship. And I think that's a very new finding. Mm -hmm. I think that in a certain way, that's probably the most important thing uh, that I'm finding in the book. And you also, if we could just hit certain periods where there have been ebbs and flows here of, of women's rights, a woman's position, right. you come to um, Samaria. Here's a, uh, 3100 to 2900 BC and pieces of sculpture you found. And here is something rather interesting, isn't it, in which there's a queen, Queen Kobaba, uh -huh. and there's a period in which women in this particular society at this moment are in better shape than other Well, days. that's the most important, uh, very interesting fact. We find in this third millennium, we find uh, women of the elite classes. You see, once, let me put it this way, once class society started, the women of the upper class derive privileges and benefits from being associated with men of the upper class. And one of the privileges is that a role is created for women, which is with us to this day. And I call it the stand-in wife. That is the wife who is a substitute for her absent, absent husband. She is a deputy for her husband. The husband has power. The wife, in his absence, at his orders, has all the powers he has. However, we still find that, like, say, for example, Queen Elizabeth of England is queen of England because there was no son. So she is, in fact, a stand-in for a male. Oh, there's even a clear case. You know Anne Firo Scott, the Southern historian? Yes, of course. Her book on Southern white women right. over the plantation, when the husbands are away during the, the women Civil are in War. Charge. In charge of everything. Actually. Oh, so, the books and right, all. Right. So in other words, yeah. what I'm saying, I call that a gender role. That is, it's a definition of what's appropriate for a woman, and one of the gender roles for women that starts as early as the third millennium BC is to be a deputy wife. Now then, the key, however, there's a limitation to the woman's power, and it is shown in the evidence I discuss from the second millennium BC. Namely, she has that power only so long as she pleases her husband sexually. If she should fail to produce sons, which in the, this period I'm discussing was always considered to be the fault of the woman, there was no such thing as a husband being having any responsibility for it. If she fails to produce sons, or if she doesn't uh, satisfy him sexually, he is free to discard her, send her home to her father, uh, and, she, and, and get another wife. So then her power is gone. And that leads me to showing that, in fact, women's access to power, even that of the most privileged women, comes always through sexual activity, through being sexually tied to a man who has power, whereas man's access to power is mm. not mediated, it's direct. Mm. Now, we have not paid enough attention to that in historical studies. We have said that class is the same thing for men and women, and I think that isn't the case. What we call class theory has described class for men. It has not described class for women. And I think the other important finding of my book is that I describe both for upper and lower class women how class relations are different for mm. them and the men. Yeah. And so in Samaria, it was the upper class woman, using that as a case in point, a Mesopotamia Soma, or yes. Egypt at the time of the priestess Ishtar and the right. others. Upper, upper class, class women. Now, when did class come into being? That come into being with agricultural well, society? Well, class came into being after slavery was institutionalized because the way the first class society was slavery. And so after slavery became well established and men and women were enslaved, the people who owned slaves were the upper class and the people who didn't were the lower class. And then the people who were in the lower class were very often uh, just on the borderline, if they had a bad harvest or something, they, they might have to sell their daughters yeah. into slavery. Well, let's get sacrilegious for a minute and get an Old Testament and talk okay. about class. You're talking about class and slavery. What, when, we got, when you got Abraham and Sarah, and uh, Sarah is barren, 
Yes. Uh, how do we know Abraham wasn't the one who was sterile? Well, we don't know. We don't know uh, that at all. So that's and a natural thing to say she was barren. Well, in this entire period in Sumer, yeah. in Assyria, in Babylon, it was always assumed that sterility was the woman's So problem. when they both agree that Hagar, the, the servant, slave, the yes. slave, will bear, will, 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 will Bear for her, for her uh, mistress. No. That goes back to a law, to a series of customs and law that existed in the surrounding area. They existed in Babylonian society already a thousand years before the Hebrews put it in the Bible. Similar arrangements. That is, if a woman could not bear children, she could appoint her slave to be her, her substitute. And the master would have sexual use of the slave anyway, but the children would then be considered legitimate heirs. And that is, in fact, what the story of Abraham and Sarah reflects. It's also the story uh, of Rachel. Rachel, Jacob, and Bilhah. Right, same thing. And so there's a servant. By the way, do you know that 40 years ago there was a play, a black play, Ethel Waters was in it, and the name of the play was Hager's Daughters. Oh, really? And I had no idea yeah. what it was about. Why? I, now I, I know. Now Hager, you know. Of yes, yeah. Hager the slave woman. And so Hager's Daughters. And you notice, by the way, in the story in the Bible, that uh, Sarah acts rather badly toward Hagar's son, right? I mean, it is Sarah who insists that Abraham should throw his son and his concubine out into the desert. And it is by an act of the Lord that Hagar and her son are yeah. protected and can survive yeah. at all. Yeah. Even though we're jumping the gun, this is all related thematically, even if not chronologically, let's stay with Genesis a minute, because here is a, a paragraph, a sentence in Genesis that I find absolutely shocking. Yes. And this is Lot speaking to the Sodomites who are surrounding the house, and they want to lynch some of the guys. They want to, mm -mm. isn't that it? It's not lynching. They want to know them. They want to have sexual intercourse with the men who are his guests. That's who do? the crime the of Sodom. Do. Yes. Oh, so the Sodomites. Sodom. Oh, that's the, the crime thing. of Sodom now is homosexuality. I now I get it. Yes. Yeah. But here is something. Here's Lot's comment because they wanted to have uh, the guests. Yeah, with they the guests. They wanted the male with, guests. Yeah. So here's what Lot says to the guys outside. I pray you, my brethren. Do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters that have not known man. No, he has two virgin daughters. daughters. Let me I pray, bring them out to you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes, anything you want. Right. Yeah. Only to these men do nothing, for as much as they come under the shadow of my roof. In other words, do not have any homosexual contact. However, here are my virgin daughters and do with them yeah. what you will. That's right. a pretty stunning... It's a pretty event. stunning episode, but what is worse about it is not so much the episode itself as that it is not designated in any part of the Bible as a criminal or despicable activity on the part of Lot. On the contrary, it's taken for granted that that is what you do because what it says is that hospitality is more important than the interest of the honor of the master of the house. Nobody asks what is the interest of the daughters of the house. There is no such interest. So in other words, the implication is even worse than the text itself. And what I am pointing out is that in a thousand or two thousand years of biblical study, uh, this passage has not been commented upon by commentators yeah. other than to say that it shows how much they abhorred the crime of homosexuality and how proud yeah. they were of yeah. hospitality. Nobody has said, wait a minute, what are they doing to these women? Yeah, hey, you can rape my virgin daughter right. as long as you keep right. us heterosexual. As now, that is, supposed, that's right. that's that is the ultimate, piece. I suppose you call it the ultimate in machismo. I That's think it, uh, it, yeah. what I'm taking out of it is yeah. I'm not trying to be judgmental about it. I'm trying to say it reflects existing yeah. conditions in the society which people don't even feel they have to explain. And I want to just point out, you see, that Lot is not being punished. On the contrary, this precedes the incident when Lot is being saved. All of Sodom is going to perish, and Lot and his family are saved by the Lord after he has done this, if you please. Uh, so I... that means the society 
does not consider this reprehensible. They take it for granted. That's what you do. And I think that shows you how very secure the subordination of women was already at this is perhaps, I'm not quite sure exactly when this passage was written, but it was some time before 600 BC. I assume right. we get some sort of theological or scriptural response here. Well, I have already gotten some of it, and people just refuse to deal with the yeah. questions I raise. They just say, uh, you don't, don't you know, you as know we're that. Talking, as we're talking, I, I know in the, in the uh, Code of Hammurabi is right. when? Now, this That's is when. Uh, 1750 approximately B.C. You know, these are all different aspects of Gerda Lerner's book on the creation of Patri patriarchy. But uh, these stunning sidelights here, of sidebars, killed for abortion. So I put down killed uh, for abortion. There were such cases, weren't there? Well, in the uh, Assyrian law code, the, uh, there are all kinds of uh, penalties um, for various crimes. The most savage penalty that we find recorded, and it is, of course, possible that there were laws that had worse penalties that haven't survived, but all I can say is the laws that we have, the most savage penalty, namely impalement, that's ramming up a stick through your body until you're dead with refusal of burial, is reserved for the woman who has a self-induced abortion. No matter what the nature of the Nobody, uh, that doesn't say anything pregnancy. about that. It yeah. just says a yeah. self-induced abortion. Yeah. And uh, generally speaking, you see all the laws, there were innumerable laws pertaining to rape, and they all were concerned uh, with the fact that the owner of the woman, who is either the father or the husband, the owner of the woman who is raped has a property loss through the rape of the woman. So the rapist has to compensate the owner of the woman or the uh, well, virtual today, owner well, today, of the woman. Of course, today, uh, no such punishment of that sort. Just you bomb a clinic, which is... <laughs> but uh, I, I think that you're right in making the connection. I mean, because, that's very contemporary. Well, what I'm trying to show and what I'd like people to think about is that in the very first law codes that human beings wrote, a great deal of the, a great many of the laws are concerned with regulating the sexuality of women. And practically none of the laws are concerned with regulating the sexuality of the men, except for rape. Uh, and as I said, rape is treated as a, if a man rapes the wife of another man, he has committed a property crime against the husband. Yeah. You see? We have to come to that, the key, another key aspect, the double standard throughout. Right. Especially as concerns sexuality, right. the whether it be marriage or not, the double standard. Because throughout, that's, the, that's one of the bases of it, too, the appearance of property, uh, slavery, women preceding other forms of slavery, preceding class, you say. I think and so. And throughout... Uh, the, the spine of it, the double standard. Talking to Gerda Lerner, Professor Gerda Lerner of the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and the creation of patriarchy is a new book published by Oxford. This is part of a series of books you've done on the whole subject of women in history, including the abolitionists, quite remarkable abolitionist sisters, the Grimke sisters, and yes. other books uh, related. After this message, we resume. We're resuming with Professor Gerda Lerner and uh, the book, The Creation of Patriarchy, which is very, by the way, it's a very uh, a stunning sort of work and that examples are there throughout and they jump at you and stuff you accept, familiar pieces of writing now and then you see with a new insight as concerns the role or non-role of women. And so we come to the double standard throughout. Well, the aspect, I mean, the essential ingredient of patriarchy is that men control resources and allocate them to women. Uh, that men control the sexuality of women and regulate it, all right? And the way they regulate it is by what we now call the double standard. That is, adultery, for example, is considered a crime for which a woman uh, can be killed. If a woman commits adultery, she and the adulterer can be killed depending, and, and, and the changes in the different law codes. But a man committing adultery 
with a woman uh, if he is not caught, uh, does not get uh, equally punished. Now, it depends in, in, the, uh, in the Hammurabi Code, they are still treating the adulterer, the male, uh, as, as they do yeah. the woman. Well, of course, you know, this, this leads to a whole matter of prostitution. Now, we know today, rarely is the John arrested. He is now and then picked up because of but the prostitute is arrested. Right. They're always the regular Hollands. The John is more uh, often afraid. On, uh, on rare occasions, he's pulled in. That's right. But you see, what I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think maybe I didn't say that yeah. clearly enough. What the double standard consists of is that a man in his marital relationship is not obliged to be monogamously yeah. faithful. Yeah. He can have prostitutes. He can use the slave women. That's not considered adultery. But a woman, if she uh, has any yeah. sexual contact with another man, that's uh, yeah. supposed to be, that's a, yeah. that's a little crime. Right. So we come to the prostitution All right. and its beginnings and family, I suppose. Right. Well, prostitution, of course, is much older than these uh, restrictive laws. And I, I have a theory about the origin of prostitution, that it actually uh, had a number of origins. But in the very earliest period, before states were established, before uh, slavery, prostitutes were mostly connected with the temples and with the cult worship of a goddess, and they were not considered uh, bad women. They, it was an occupation this like any the, other. The sacred harlot. It was sacred, right. And there were even other harlots who worked for the temple, and they were frequently in, in uh, Babylonian society, they were used as uh, wet nurses for the children of respectable people. So they were not yet considered uh, you know, beyond the pale. It was just an occupation. But when slavery set in and slave women were actually used, slaveholders set up brothels and then it became disgraceful. And I point to a law which occurs in the Assyrian Law Code. And it's called Middle Assyrian Law Number 40. And it's absolutely stunning. It's a law pertaining to veiling. Who could wear a veil outside, all right? Now, what it does is it says that it is a great privilege, essentially, to wear a veil, okay? And only certain groups of women are allowed to wear veils. What kind of women are they? They are virgin daughters of burghers. So it's a class thing, right? They are the wives of burghers, okay? They are the concubines of burghers, but only if accompanied by the wife. You notice that? And that's all. Now, who cannot wear a veil? A slave woman cannot wear a veil. A prostitute cannot wear a veil, okay? And a concubine who is not accompanied by her mistress. Now, this is a very strange law. And again, the people who have interpreted this law, like on so many other laws pertaining to sexuality, there's a very curious silence. I mean. I have read many interpretations of all of the Hammurabi and other law codes. On this subject, they just say, well, this sets up the privilege of wearing a veil. But I analyzed this law closely, and I noticed that it does not distinguish between property classes, because slave women, if they're concubines, can wear a veil. Yeah. And slave women, if they're uh, not concubines, yeah. cannot wear but it. But the veil is the sign of respectability. The veil is the sign of respectability, and the veil says this woman is the property of a man. That's ah, the main thing. So there's thing. a double as a there double. Is the edge. message is this woman is sexually the attached double. to a man, so stay away <laughs> from her. The fact is, you the see? prostitute, the, the prostitute is a free enterprise. Is freer. She's a free enterprise and therefore woman. needs not freer, also disreputable. Right. You see, being free. Being free is to be disreputable. Being respectable is to be owned. Right. That's what, that's what the Sexually owned. You see, Sexually. what I'm saying, therefore, is to me this is one of the cornerstones in what we need to understand about the class uh, definition of women. For women, class has to do with their sexual conduct. For men, it has to do with property. So a woman who is sexually unattached 
is in the lowest class regardless of whether yeah. she has property yeah. or not. A woman who is sexually attached yeah. to a man is yeah, in a higher a, class. But there's a great irony here, you see. Respectability and subservience. Come together. And disreputable, disreputability, disreputableness, and independence. So that's very, that's pretty good. That is pretty yeah. good. But what I'd like to call your attention yeah. to on this is that <clears throat> we have not recognized this in all the writings pertaining to class. We have always acted as though women were the same as men in regard to class, and in fact, they're not. And Middle Assyrian law, 40, tells us the beginnings of it. Maybe not, it's maybe not even the first law of this type. Maybe there were earlier laws that we haven't found. But it's a very startling example, and it shows you why so-called respectable women participate in patriarchy because to them then now their respectability is a class privilege. They don't want the whore out in the street mm -hmm. to wear the veil so that you couldn't tell who's a whore and who's a, who's a lady, you see. That has, of course, kept women apart from one another hey, for get, millennia. You see, you, see? Now, yes, you see, another thing, property, it's funny how all this connects. Yeah. The veil had to be there. The veil is the telltale sign of someone who is own subservient, subservient, and therefore, since I'm the boss, property, you are respectable. Yeah, I want Because you're outside, to... but non-veil, without the veil, you are freer, independent, therefore you're outside my control. Right. You know Except damn for good. slave women who also are owned, but they cannot yeah. wear a veil. Yeah. So they are, uh, they are yeah. also lower class. It also makes a distinction. Well, now you know? class comes into being all right. Right, right. But I want to just make a point about uh, the, the uh, owning. When we say owned, we don't want to, people to say, I don't want people to quote me and say that I said that in that society men actually owned their wives. They did not actually fully own their wives. They did not own them the way they owned slaves. They owned sexual rights and reproductive rights to their wives. That is, for example, the husband could decide whether the wife's child should live or die. That was his prerogative. And most of the time it meant that if they had too many girl children, they exposed the girl children to die because they were there was no interest in that, okay? It meant that the husband had a property. But these same women in Hammurabic society and in Assyrian had great property rights. They could, they could do things that 19th century American women could not do. They could buy and trade. They could give witness in court. They could um, go to law in their own right, okay? So it's... Uh, Another lesson to be learned from this material is that when we want to talk about the position of women, it's never simple. A woman could be very privileged in one area, like these Mesopotamian ladies were, in fact, economically, the upper-class ladies, very privileged. She could have freedom in the area of law, uh, in civil law. She had more freedom than a 19th century American woman, and yet, as a person with a sexuality, she was totally controlled by her husband. Well, this, uh, you since you speak of the Mesopotamian society and this crazy paradox that was there, and in certain other societies, we have to speak of also the goddesses who were right. there too. And what had to be done to these goddesses? Let's, let's take this last pause, talking to Dr. Gerda Lerner okay. of the University of Wisconsin, professor of history there. And her books primarily deal with the the role of women in, in our history. The whole subject of history also is more essential, more critical than ever, because we seem to lack a history at this moment, I'd say. I think, male or female, just lack a history, uh -huh. lack a sense of past. The book, the most recent book of Dr. Lerner, is The Creation of Patriarchy, Oxford the Publishers, and we'll resume in a moment. And so we resume for the last lap. And the subject was the goddesses uh -huh. of some of the Ishtar, in one case, called the lioness. And there was Isis, the, or Isis, the, the Egyptian goddess. And they all represented a great deal of aspects in a society, not simply one attribute, but many. Right. And then they had to be cut down, didn't they? Well, uh, what, I'm, what I'm showing is that 
even in a period when women were already sexually entirely controlled by men and deprived of many rights, they still had the right to what I call speak to God. They could represent the goddess as priestesses. They could go to the temple or if they had any kind of ailment, a man or a woman was as likely to go to a priestess as he was to go to a priest. And that is because the ancient Near Eastern societies had polytheism. They believed in many gods and goddesses. But there is a development. At the very earliest period, the supreme qualities of the gods are the quality of creating fertility and creating creatures, creativity and fertility. And that was the attribute of the female goddess. And the female goddess in that early period, for example, Ishtar, was also encompassed both the good and the bad. She was a goddess of love. She was a goddess of fertility. She was the goddess that could make the trees grow and the corn grow and the water in a desert area, the most important thing, the water spring forth. But she was also the goddess of war. She was bloodthirsty. Wow. She waded yeah. up to her knees in blood, on the blood of her enemies. So she had, uh, people, uh, saw that the world was both good and bad. She was a combination of Aphrodite, of everything. Minerva, everything. Uh, Athena, right. of Diana, exactly. uh, and uh, a girl, woman Mars. Right, she everything. She had all those qualities. She was a sort of a universal goddess. Now, what happens is as these various city-states in the ancient Near East, some of them come to the fore militarily and become empires. They conquer others, they expand, etc. And just about at the period when they do that, a strange change takes place in the religion. In this whole group of gods and goddesses, all of a sudden, one god, who's usually the storm god, becomes dominant, and he becomes the main hero god. And he is then identified with the king on earth who is supposed to be representing that god. And in the process, the goddess becomes a little bit diminished, right? And then what we see is later, a little later, as this war god becomes more powerful, the goddesses sort of start splitting off into different qualities so that suddenly there's a goddess for uh, domestic virtue, there's a goddess for erotic or for fertility. Uh, the goddesses become specialized, so to speak. Uh, this, is hap this happens in many, many different cultures, and I dis detail some examples, yeah. not by no mm. means all. But still, in the temple of the goddesses, women priestesses are as important as priests. But when monotheism comes in, all right, the cult of one god, you have the people who believed in the cult of Yahweh had to struggle against the cult of the other gods. And in the particular case of the Hebrews, they had to struggle against the Canaanite, Canaanite religion. And that was the god Baal, and his goddess was Asherah. All right? And for hundreds of years, uh, people believed in Yahweh, and then they, they gave worship to Asherah and Baal at home, or sometimes even in the temple. And so the prophets, that really were the major drive to make the religion of Yahweh the universal religion. Those were the people who wrote the book of Genesis. They were actually in a real battle against the cult of these goddess, gods and goddesses. And so, and so they, in my opinion, that is the reason why they incorporated well, it, in it, their story well, you know, all the elements uh, that downgraded the goddess. Well, you know what you've just done? You've brought us to the end of the cycle. We come to something I brought in earlier, so let's do it histori uh, chronologically. We come to the excuses given to do this, doing this, the rationale, and we come to Adam and Eve. Right. He comes back to that. So therefore, we see the curse of Eve. Well, I suppose I'm still here the phrase when the menstrual period comes, it's the curse. Yeah. A curse. Eve also, it, with the end of the fertility goddess, as you were describing at this moment, it was Eve who brought sin and death into the world. And poor Adam is the innocent bystander here, yeah. or a victim. There has been a lot of uh, you know, interpretation of the story of creation in Genesis by feminists throughout the centuries. 
and it's usually focused on, on uh, God's curse. But I am focusing on the symbol of the snake. And what we need to understand is that for the contemporaries, at the time this was written, there was no question that everyone would recognize that the snake is the symbol of the fertility goddess. So what's involved in the story of Adam and Eve is there shall be enmity between you and the snake. That's the basic thing. You must abolish the cult of the fertility goddess in order to have the the blessings. The snake is also wisdom. Well, that's later. I don't think the snake was wisdom to the Mesopotamians and to the Canaanites. The snake was the symbol of the fertility goddess. Mm. And so one of the elements of the story is that you must denounce the cult of the fertility goddess and instead embrace the cult of the uh, single god. Now, I'd like to say, in order not to be misunderstood, Mm. that first of all, it was not just in the Hebrew religion that this tendency toward monotheism came about. Monotheism also began to develop in the surrounding areas, and it was in a similar vein. So we should not vulgarize this to say that it was the Hebrews that caused caused the subordination of women in terms of religion. That was not the case. It was an accidental development that, it was an accident of history that the development of monotheism, which I consider one of the great advances in human civilization, because it helped us to think abstractly, you see. It's the step, the single step in the history of ideas by which men learned that we can have an abstract idea that we can put no picture to, that we can ascribe no qualities to, and yet it is something. No graven image. No graven image, and yet it's a force. That's an enormous advance. Without it, we could never have had science. Without it, we could never have had uh, all the advances of Western civilization. So it is an accident of history that that development took place in a context where the main enemy was the cult of the various gods and goddesses. And so the uh, creation of patriarchy came out in one, one form or another out of a variety of sources. That's right. That, I'm, I'm glad you said yeah. that because one of the things that I am revising is the idea that it was due to one factor. It was due one, to many one, factors yeah. and due to a complex historical development. And so the creation of patriarchy is the book and Gerda Lanner by Germain Bray the British and uh, British, the French novelist, says the scholarship is impeccable, opening with new perspectives on the history of women. And that's the point, new perspectives. And that's what we're talking about. And this is by way of, and Alice Kessler Harris at Hofstra University similarly speaks of it. And this is Oxford University Press, the publishers, the creation of patriarchy by my guest, Dr. Professor Gerda Lerner. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoyed this.